If grace is an ocean, we're all sinking, right? Grace. Hold tight. Well, I'm going to dive in just a second. I just want to remind those of you, if for some reason you weren't here last week or you didn't see any of our updates or hear any of our updates, uh, we announced last week a a transition in our pastoral team uh, over the course of this year. Uh, You're going to see little by little, probably culminating in a more formal event in August, that that Brian Wages is going to become the senior pastor, and uh, I'm going to become something like uh, the founding pastor. And uh, somebody said to me earlier this week, or said to Carol, man, that's like really cool, like that must be a really significant promotion. I know how much Jeff loves doing what he does, and and we're like, well, actually, uh, you know, we're not. Uh, it's the it's the it's the downward mobilization plan, trusting the Lord, and that we will, you know, by the middle of this year, wean ourselves off of our support from the church in favor of creating capacity here for for the Lord to do what He wants to do with uh, with the church, and and we'll be trusting the Lord to provide for us. And so, last week. Uh, and, and we want to make sure we have time and, and space over the course of the months to, to talk about that with you. We're not going anywhere you know, right now. We probably will in August do a little bit of a sabbatical. It's something we've been planning and promising that we would do for a long, long time and haven't done. Uh, but we're going to be around and have plenty of time and space to talk about what that means for all of us. Um, and I will tell you that we are really excited about the things that the Lord's already doing uh, through our church and through leadership as, as, as people are beginning to, you know, build up around, um, I think, what, what God's got in store for us. And so last week I spent uh, this time in a message, excuse me, talking about, you know, the things that change and things that stay the same uh, when, we're, when we're looking at seasons or times of transition. And uh, this week I want to continue that in a way with something less technical and listy and something more philosophical. Um, I want to kind of bring you in, so to speak, into the way that my mind works with regards to our uh, thinking about our lives and the way that we spend our lives. We have, you know, I I look at my life right now and and believe that I have about a third of my life or my ministry life left to offer. You know, the Lord, um, you know, people say, well, you, you know, you're middle age, and I tell them I'm not probably going to live to be 110, so I'm probably more than middle age. You know, I'm in the, into that point of looking at, you know, Lord, how do, I, how do I utilize the time that I have? And you shouldn't wait till you're 55 years old to do this. You know, how do I utilize my time in a way that is the highest and best use of my time for you, right? And so it's actually one of my favorite ways to, to look through the lens uh, of the scriptures and, and find my own life intersecting there. Uh, to, to, to see this place. I mean, there, there are these big themes that go throughout Scripture. The most significant narrative or story that Scripture holds from Genesis to Revelation is this overwhelming story of God's redemptive love and the lengths to which he'll go to buy us back. He tells us this story through uh, a people called Israel and then begins to tell us this story through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And then he tells us this story through the church and the book of Acts, and the letters that follow. And then he tells us actually how all history will culminate, this love story will culminate in the book of Revelation. And he gives us this period we live in now between his first and second coming, where we are literally living into this story of this great redemptive love. But one of those other themes that that lives right alongside of that theme is this theme of how we are constantly moving up against eternal matters, 
how we are constantly faced with what I just prayed about our fellowship time, where we could somehow move beyond just a simple little interaction on a day-to-day basis, a kind of a hanging out and have coffee with a friend, to something that touches eternity. The Bible is constantly showing us stories of, of, of what this looks like. In fact, the passage that we're going to look at today is, is one that is kind of crammed full of that. And so if you have your Bibles, you can open up to, to Acts chapter 16. And I'll give you some context. I'm going to be starting around verse 22. But just to give you some context of what I mean and how the Bible works this way, you know, in this chapter, this whole chapter is full of this kind of movement where there's, as I say here, the corner of today and forever where, where these things are colliding and Paul is finding himself as he is in the continent of Asia. You, you know, he's, he's, you know, do you know that the Middle East, the, the continent of Asia includes the Middle East and Paul's in Asia and he's wanting to continue to, to minister in this area and the Holy Spirit actually prevents him from doing this. And instead, he receives this vision. He's, you know, what am I going to do today? And this vision comes from this, uh, he has this vision of a man in Macedonia. If you don't know it, Macedonia is in a different, not just a different area to preach the gospel. In this passage, we see the gospel being opened up to a whole new continent. It goes to Europe. And and for the first time, we see the gospel being preached in Europe. And, and, the, and so you're like, man, something significant's happening here. And as soon as he enters into Philippi, you know, he begins to interact with a, with a woman of peace, a person of peace who, who can expand out the gospel to the, you know, to, to, the, to the whole city. And then he encounters a woman, a young girl, a slave girl, who has a spirit, a spirit of divination, or what the Bible calls, literally in Greek, a python spirit. And, and he... They deal with her just, just significantly and severely. They're saying this about them. These guys, this is what she's saying. This is what the Spirit's saying. These guys are going to tell you how to get saved. And they say, basically, come out, Spirit. And, and she's instantly delivered from this, from this spirit of divination. The problem is she was a moneymaker. You know, people, have you ever seen people who can use, you know, they can, they can read the signs at times and they're kind of, crafty and they can do you know, the what do you call it, like three card monty or whatever it is well well, this, well there's something like that except it's really it's really uh empowered by the demonic i've seen both i've seen people who stand on street corners and can steal your money and i've seen people who are actually you know operating under, under the spirit of divination i've seen both and this woman is actually operating under the spirit of divination but making money for people and as soon as she is somebody's economic you know, the situation is, is hurt. These Europeans, these Gentiles, look at these two Jewish guys who are stirring up trouble and say, you're going to wreck the whole town. So what do they do? They have them taken, and they beat the tar out of them. I mean, they literally just beat them to shreds. And, and that's basically where we pick up the story in Acts chapter 16, where all these colliding things are happening. You know, the gospel's going into Europe. You know, uh, Paul and Silas are contending with demonic spirits in the name of Jesus winning, but getting, paying a price for the gospel. And so we pick up the story in verse 22. It says, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. And after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell 
and fastened their feet in the stocks. Just so you know, the inner cell is, you know, the most secure part of the prison. Just so you know, the stocks they, they used at that time had all kinds of openings for your, for your legs so that no matter how big or small somebody was, you could be put in an uncomfortable position. These weren't just stocks that were connected to your feet that kept you chained. You could have one leg put this way and the other leg flayed all the way the other way to create extreme discomfort. This was not a, a happy thing to be, to be in the inner cell with your feet in the stocks. Nevertheless, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the doors flew open, and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights and rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, like the woman with the spirit had said, these guys are going to tell you, you know, about getting saved. And And he says to them, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Literally, the word he uses there is lords. They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the jailer's house And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, and then immediately he and his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them, and he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. And so, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name that you would cause us to have one of those collisions as we encounter this story uh, between today and forever. We ask, Lord, that, uh, that you would start by penetrating our hearts so that we, are, we have open doors. Unlock the doors to our heart, Lord. Just by grace, even right now, just cause us just to settle in and to be willing to open that door ourselves. Like it says in Revelation 3, that you stand at the door and knock. Just help us, Lord, to trust you enough to open the door right now that you might Step in and fellowship with us in this word. Lord, start with my heart. I pray that you would speak deeply to my own heart, that I might be ready to speak words and able to speak words that would matter eternally. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Well, I love life. I love life in general. I I don't know if you do. All of you do. I love life. I love my life. Uh, do you love your life? I mean, let's be honest. Some yes, some no, some meh. You know, I, I love my life. I have no strong complaint about my life. It doesn't mean I haven't struggled and suffered in certain areas. But all in all, you know, I like it. But if I were able to stand before God and offer him one piece of advice about my life and maybe yours... I wish there was something like a warning sign for life that said something like warning, dangerous intersection, life intersection up ahead. Like I wish I always knew when it was getting ready to happen. You know, I'm uneasy with the fact that at any moment of any day, at any time, without any warning, I might encounter some issue, some aspect of of eternal importance without knowing that it's coming. 
You know, I wish someone would warn me that just up ahead, like an hour from now, or at seven this evening, or whenever it may be, that today is going to intersect with forever. Now, if I had that kind of knowledge, I'm not sure what I'd do with it. I'm not sure I'd wisely steward it, but I can tell you, if I'm being honest with you, and I am, I really would prefer to have that kind of warning, would you? The, the very best of our like poets and novelists have always understood that there's something, you know, about us that's just intrinsically, you know, internally, without even thinking about it, naturally fascinated with that intersection. There's a, a, a famous bit from a poem by Elizabeth Barrett Browning that gets at this a bit. It says, Earth is crammed with heaven, and every common bush is a fire with God, but only he who takes off his shoes but only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and pluck blackberries. Elizabeth Barrett Brown is saying that the eternal and the, and the temporal, that today and forever are constantly interacting. And if you recognize that, you'll realize that the whole earth is ablaze with burning bushes. And if you see it, you'll stop and you'll take off your shoes and you'll, you know, you'll, you'll get what God wants to get out of that moment. But the rest of us just sit around and pluck blackberries. Early in my walk, there's a uh, Christian author by the name of Frank Peretti. Anybody ever heard of Frank Peretti? He wrote a lot of, uh, in the late 80s, he wrote some novels that were about uh, the, this collision between this, the spiritual and the, and, the, and, the, and the physical realm. Books like Piercing the Darkness and I think Through the Darkness or something like that. Novels that were called supernatural thrillers uh, because Peretti was possessed himself by this feeling that the line between us in another world is so often so thin that you never know to what degree that other world is intersecting with ours. And somebody had said, a critic of Peretti said that he sees demons and angels behind every bush. Anybody ever, anybody ever read his stuff? Yeah, I mean, it really was fascinating for me in the early days of my walk to be awakened to the reality of a spiritual realm and spiritual warfare. But it's not just in that kind of world. It kind of it's so pervasive in us that it permeates all of culture. Let me tell you one of the songs from my formative years, because I could pull out any of them. I just pulled out this one because it reminds me so much of, of how, how much this pervades, like the, the, the silliness of our love songs that promise things that we could never really love, live up to, but they're, they're deep within us. This was a certain song by a Miss Diana Ross and Lionel Richie called Endless Love. My love. That's, that's not saying my love, the love I have. He's speaking or she's speaking to the lover. My love, there's only you in my life, the only thing that's bright. My first love, you're every breath that I take. You're every step I make. And I, I, Brian, do you want to sing a duet? You said you want to do last week. Get on up here. You do, you do Diana, I'll do Lionel. I want to share all my love. Let me keep going. (laughs) In your eyes. (laughs) You know this song? Do you know the promise that's made in this song? Your eyes, they tell me how much you care. Oh, yes, you will always be my endless love. Two hearts, two hearts that beat as one. Our lives have just begun forever. Forever I'll hold you close in my arms. I can't resist your charms. 
it goes on and on and on, because you mean the world to me, and I know I've found in you my endless love. This is kind of the nature, it's the silliness almost of, of, of what we sing. And you go listen to any pop love song that's out there, and I promise you there's some measure in which it, it, it promises more than it can deliver on. But that burning desire that's within us to meet our endless or undying love, it's, it drives us. It's, it's, it's real. Isn't it real? It's, it drives us. It drives millions of people to like to read a horoscope every day because they want to find out if today is maybe the day that's going to be an unforgettable day. And don't lie to me. You probably, some of you, many of you maybe have a fridge magnet that says like today is the first day of the rest of your life. Right? Something inspirational. Don't read. Well, get, I mean, do you have something like that? Yeah, up and down. Why? Why are we possessed with this sort of fascination with, you know, these, this thing that goes so deep and so far. It's because the writer of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes tells us why. It's because God has placed eternity in our hearts. We're built by God. There's something in us, something planted by God that, that, that's, that, that, that causes us to sense deep inside of us that we matter. And we matter profoundly. And, and except for moments where we, we have this irrational hopelessness, and all of us kind of can slip into that, you know, we really can't believe that we're just meaningless. We, you know, we, we can't just believe, none of us will, like, be happy or satisfied believing that we're living out, like, our life is a vapor and we're living out these short and meaningless days on a meaningless planet with no meaning to our lives. Something really deep within us screams that we matter and, and specifically, that we matter to God. So, Yeah. So we, we, we feel deep within ourselves that maybe today or any day we might have an encounter that will affect us for the rest of our lives and perhaps even for eternity. And we sense that, that, that we don't only have just the capacity to encounter the corner of today and forever, but those kinds of encounters are inevitable, that we can't miss them. So shouldn't there be like a warning sign for that intersection? seems pretty important. And it's that realization, or maybe I would say like a conviction within me, that draws me to this guy who lived 2,000 years ago. And I can't tell you his name. I don't know his name, but I feel like I know him really well. He's a civil servant in the Roman government. And to be specific, he was the jailer in the city of Philippi. And I, I, it doesn't really seem like too important a job, does it? jailer in the city of Philippi, but I can tell you at least in one way it's really important. It was one of those kinds of jobs that was life or death. You know, you mess up in this job and you're dead. That's the the weight in which this job, you know, carries. And I can't help wondering to myself, why would anybody want a job like that? (laughs) That kind of weight. And perhaps it tells us a little something about the guy that he's either so desperate for work that would support his family, or maybe he has that need, and some of us have that need for, for an adventure-based adrenaline rush, that what we do that will take a dangerous job like this. It kind of reminds me of coal miners. If you ever look at the lives of coal miners, that same combo of despair and daring, 
you know, where you're, you know, what motivates? You ever think about it? What motivates generations of coal miners who keep putting themselves time and time again into these tiny little mine shafts, sometimes just inches wide, even though they know that they know personally neighbors and relatives who have died doing the same exact thing, but yet they keep doing the same exact work. It's part despair because what other choice do I have? And it's part like daring, like I can do this. It's not going to happen to me. And most of the time, this jailer's work was pretty grim work. I mean, think about what it meant, you know, dealing with not the cream of the crop, not the, the top upper crust of society, but dealing with people on a daily basis who are pretty rough and tumble kinds of people. And, and, and so you, I mean, I don't want to say this in a way that, might, that would offend you because some of you have jobs that you're like, ooh. But do you know that we usually become like our work environment? We often become like our work environment. So it isn't hard to imagine that this guy has become a hard man. You know, not, not necessarily brutal or unfair, but hardened. You know, not unlike, you know, a 30-year police veteran. You know, you just kind of sort of don't see the world the same way. You've seen enough. Seen the underbelly. That's a great way to put it. But still worse for this guy, he and his family have to live right there in the prison complex. So this guy can't even fully get away from his work, when the, the ugliness of his work when the day is done. And yet something about this job holds on to this guy. I, do you get that? Well, I mean, think about it. I, I get it in this way. It's a position of responsibility, and, and for what it's worth, responsibility responsibility can form a pretty significant tie to a person's soul. Sometimes people will stay in something, no matter how grim and despairing and hard it is, just simply because of responsibility, a sense of duty. And so this guy just goes about his work on this particular morning doing the same old thing he does every day. He looks in on each prisoner, a typically sorry group of societal rejects, and he begins to deal with the minutia of the day. It was like every day. It was just a day called today. But sometime that afternoon, the authorities come dragging in these two bloody, naked Jewish men, badly beaten. And they were delivered to the jailer with a message that had some urgency to it. These, the, the officials, the magistrates, warned the jailer that you should not by any means allow these two men to escape. Whatever it takes, do not allow these two men to escape. I, I kind of like to enter into Scripture and put myself there. And when, I, when, I, when in my mind's eye I see myself there, I imagine the jailer laughing. Because these two badly beaten Jewish guys didn't look like the escaping type. But uh, without any further you know, thought about it. He does what he's ordered. He puts them into the most secure spot in the prison, the inner dungeon, and just to make matters more sure, he clamps their feet in these stocks that make it even, you know, more uncomfortable, and then just goes about his day. And that very night, around midnight, these two men begin to sing. And I doubt that their song, I'm pretty confident their song didn't have much of an impression on the jailer, uh, except for the fact that it was actually accomplishing something positive for the environment of the jail. It was causing the other prisoners to be silent and listen. That's not a bad thing for a warden. And yes, the jailer, you know, I, I think he would have known, undoubtedly the song was religious, but I don't think he really 
knew the song. It wasn't like Endless Love. I don't think he recognized many of the specifics of the song. But the song seemed to indicate to the jailer that these guys were happy. As a, as a matter of fact, they weren't just happy. These two badly beaten, naked Jewish guys who were in the inner dungeon with their legs locked in the, in the stocks were singing like they just won gold medals in the Olympics. And then the whole, ja- the whole world for that jailer caved in. An earthquake strikes. We don't know anything about the earthquake. It doesn't say anything about this, you know, citywide, you know, 7.8 earthquake strikes Philippi. It just says that the foundations of the jail shook. It doesn't even say anything about any damage to the jail, does it? It just says that the doors open and the stocks fall off of all the people, all the prisoners. I've never been in that condition myself, locked in the inner dungeon with the stocks, but I'm telling you that uh, I've read stories, even stories of people that I really respect, like, like Brother Yoon, the heavenly man. And he had occasions where he was locked in the inner inner dungeons of Chinese prisons and doors would open and he, and he would walk out. And so what do you think is the natural thing to do when you're a prisoner and you've been badly beaten and you're stripped and you know that you know, people want or have it out for you and an earthquake happens and the chains fall off and the doors swing wide open? You're thinking, all right, thank you, Holy Spirit, I'm gone. And that's what the jailer's thinking. You know, by the time that the the, the, the shaking stops and the dust clears. The, uh, the jailer realized that all of his prisoners are, you know, that, that all of them had been shaken loose. And, that, and this is absolutely the worst thing that can happen to, to this guy. His career is over and probably his actual life is finished. And so he draws his sword to kill himself. Yeah, feeling like maybe if he kills himself, his family's life would be saved. And at least he would spare his family the shame of a trial. When the government executes him, shame and honor is important in this culture. But just as quickly as he's about to do this, his, his despair, his hopelessness gets interrupted by this, this, this voice from inside of one of those strange, you know, inner dungeon parts from one of those strange, naked, badly beaten, singing prisoners. Don't do it. We're all here. The jailer runs into the dungeon and falls down before Paul and Silas and calls them lords and they say, no, look, it's not us. It's the Lord Jesus. And he leads these guys out of, their, out of the pit out of the, and so he could ask them a really, really poignant question. He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Boom. There it is. Intersection. The corner of today and forever. What did the jailer mean by that question? Well, now, in the room here right now, there are some of you who are accustomed to dealing with this kind of questions about life at a completely worldly or secular level. That's, that's the way you're accustomed to thinking about things because you live on that street of today. That's where you spend all your time. And so you would answer, it's really simple. He's wondering how to get out of the mess he's in, right? You know, his job, the absolute mess that he's made of losing the other prisoners, and perhaps he's going to you know, get executed and the cost it's going to extract on his family. And so without being a jerk or sounding too high and mighty, I got to tell you, I have to, I have to challenge that analysis. Your analysis that it's, the guy's just thinking about his job. 
if that's your take on the situation, I think you're, you're not looking deeply enough into the story or you're not looking deeply enough into human nature as a whole. But now, if I were to seek an answer from a really spiritual person, a spiritual person is going to be equally sure that it's just a simple matter. They're going to say, it's very simple. This man is hungry for eternal life. He wants to be saved from an eternity in hell. And just like that, you know, he says, you know, what must I have to be, do to be saved? It's as clear as can be. And again, without being abrupt or without seeming disrespectful of your spirituality, I would have to say to you, my devout spiritual friend, that you're reading too much into the story. You see, I think we're dealing with an instance here where somebody's standing at the corner of today and forever. Here's what I mean. On the one hand, we spiritual folks are inclined to see everything happening on Forever Street. Everything's eternal with folks waiting to be saved and sanctified. But to be honest about it, most people aren't walking around day and day wondering how to be saved. If it were, guys like me would have a much easier job. I've yet to have somebody interrupt me in the middle of a message and say, sir, what must I do to be saved? Most people, most of the time, are thinking about life on Today Street, about school, about keeping their job, about getting a ticket for some sporting event or a concert, wondering about their love life. Why am I not married or why am I married? These kids, you know, these parents... Or, you know, calculating the retirement fund and going, am I going to pay off if I live to be a few more years older? Is it, is it going to be enough to get me to the finish line or not? But on the other hand, secular people think that's all there is to life, right? They feel that if a person can just keep up, like, the mortgage payments and, and get a few friends and, and get an occasional promotion in life and you can, live, you, know, you can see your kids make the Little League team, that you've got it all. Then one day, something happens that brings your life, you know, screaming into that intersection of today and forever. And for the jailer, 2,000 years ago, it was two unlikely prisoners followed by an earthquake. But sometimes it's not that. Sometimes it's like bad news from the doctor or a horrible accident or some dishonest act or action by your spouse or your best friend that hurts you or cuts you deeply or it's flunking out of school or whatever. I mean, don't rely on me to name it. And those are the times we're likely to cry out in some way, what do I got to do to be saved? But we don't usually say it that way. We usually say something like, what am I going to do? What, 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 whatever in the world am I going to do now? Or, you know, on the other hand, that, that, that intersection, that you might come screaming into that intersection when everything's going really well. And you might find yourself saying something like, there's got to be more to life than this. More than three cars in a promotion and a retirement plan. I mean, there's got to be more, God, right? This isn't all. What do I got to do? And that cry is just as authentic and it's just as upsetting as when the jailer at Philippi says, what do I got to do to be saved? The verbs weren't really any different. It's at exactly these kind of moments that today and forever collide. We think at first uh, that the issue is our job or that broken relationship or that lump that, you know, might be malignant or whatever. But for a human being, nothing on this earth is simply on this earth. Nothing. You know, all of heaven's all of earth is crammed with burning bushes. And everything that happens to us has some possible significance of eternal matter. And that's because you and I are eternal creatures. We were made for eternity. We have eternity planted within our hearts. 
So when the jailer says to the two prisoners, Paul and Silas, what do I got to do to be saved? He might first be thinking solely about keeping his job. Well, how do I get out of the mess that I'm in? But the crisis like, of his work opens a door up in the spiritual realm that he's more than just a jailer. He's more than just a job keeper. He's more than just a husband and a father that has to attend to his family and make sure they're okay. He's an eternal creature. He's this guy who's made by God, and he matters to God, and he happens to spend his time on the planet running a jail, providing for his family and paying his taxes and doing the kind of things you do day in and day out. But, you know, here's the thing. Don't get caught up in the details here. Don't let them confuse you. Primarily, above everything, this guy is an eternal creature, just like you and just like me. So Paul and Silas, Paul and Silas, say to him, forget all that stuff about your life. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved along with your entire household. Now that was an eternal answer. That's not a today answer, right? It's, but it's not just a heavenly answer because eternity, eternity doesn't just imply um, simply you know, like pie in the sky by and by when you die. It, doesn't, it, it, it also means, that kind of answer also means a different quality of life right here, right now. Right here, right now. And recognizing that, that that intersecting street of forever street doesn't diminish the importance of today's street. I mean, to, to the, it's the opposite. Today, now, today carries way more meaning than it's ever carried because its eternal element's been recognized. You begin to realize, wow, this is flooding in. These roads are actually coming together. And so consider, for, for instance, what the jailer does. What happens? Although the jailer is only asked about his own salvation, right? He's like, what do I got to do to get out of this mess? Or what do I got to do to get my soul out of here? Paul and Silas don't answer just about him. What do they say? They say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you and your entire household can come into right relationship with God. When we begin to dip our toe into that intersection of today and forever, you begin to get a much more profound understanding of our responsibility to the world around us, to family, to neighbor, to society, to everybody around you. We begin to see this. Are you ready for it? It's not all about you. This is the real meat that's in the, in the, this is the marrow in the middle of the bone in a word like this. When you get, when you touch on this, you begin to realize it's just not all about me. It's about everything around me. It's beginning, my eyes suddenly are opened up to this whole world of stuff that God's doing all around me. Henry Blackaby wrote a very famous spiritual book called Experiencing God, where he said this. He said, just find out what God's up to around you and join him in that. That's what will bring significance to your life. Just find out the nearest and closest thing you can find that God's doing and just start doing that with God. And so, in fact, look what happens next to this jailer. After listening to what Paul and Silas had to say, all of a sudden he notices something that he, had, he hadn't seen earlier that day when the two men were brought to the jail. He realizes they're covered with blood and cuts. And those wounds ought to be washed up and bound up. And so what does he do? He takes care of them. 
That's because forever had just touched today, and now this guy's a different kind of man with a different kind of you know, ability to see the world around him with a different sense of responsibility for today. So the jailer performs a baptism of kindness on Paul and Silas, and they return the favor with a baptism of sacrament for him and his family. Later that day, Paul and Silas leave town, and the jailer goes back to just running his jail. It's the last we ever hear of him. You know, I don't know if he ever has another day that's anything like this the rest of his life. Maybe he's got, a, he's got a ministry of miracles when he joins up with Lydia and Philippi, and I don't know what his, his life looks like, but it's entirely possible that he, he and his family began to love God and follow Yeshua and just managing the jail. But the Bible says this, that the jailer was filled with joy because his whole family now believed in God. That's the verse 34. And I don't know how much that touches your heart, but here's what it gets me. Seven verses earlier, maybe just a few hours ago, he was suicidal. He was ready to end it all. Ready to end his entire life, and now he's full of joy. That's, that's what can happen at the corner of today and forever. You know, my guess is that from that day forward, everything was different for this guy. Even though I think he was still a jailer and a husband and a father and still a citizen of Rome, I think it was all different because he's now one who, through through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, this guy has now established a relationship with God and with the eternal. And so, Brian, come on up. I'm going to finish with... An exercise of sorts. So, you may not be with me. You might not really think it's important. Maybe you like to just, you know, go zipping into the intersections without any prior warning, and you live life that way. But as I was saying earlier, I think life ought to have some sort of warning sign at certain points. It says, you know, approaching important intersection. Because you just don't ever know when that's going to happen, do you? You can't ever exactly tell when it's going to happen. You wake up one morning, think it's going to be just another day like every other day, never guessing what might be ahead. You know, business with God, eternal sorts of things. And believe me when I say this, it could happen to you because perhaps it already has happened to you or perhaps it's going to happen to you sometime like later this year or sometimes later this month or maybe this week, maybe even today, maybe Quite possibly tonight it's like 7 o'clock. Or in fact, for sure, like right here. This is one of the most profound examples of where today and forever intersect. Where you come into contact with tangible, you know, carpe diem. Seize the day. Feed myself. Put something. Nothing screams to the, 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 the needs of today more than physical sustenance. We need these things. We need these elements. But also nothing is filled with the greater sense of the eternal than the promise that Jesus puts in this that when we eat of this bread and this cup that we actually engage Him in the, in the body, in the blood. Mysteriously, he's, he's, we, we come into relationship, into communion with Him. It's a, it's, this, this meal's an intersection. And you can just take it rotely. You can come up, you know, with, um, 
what Dr. Mark Rutland calls bovine enthusiasm. You know, just kind of like you're in line, like, you know, and you come up and you get it and you dip it in. Or you can come up with this profound sense that I'm about to meet Jesus. I'm about to encounter the presence of God in, an, in, in something so simple and common and mundane as a little tiny little piece of bread dipped into the cup and I'm going to encounter the Lord. And this isn't intended to be the only way. This isn't intended to be your Philippian jailer moment in and of itself. It's intended to be a prophetic sign, a reminder that it's all around you. And maybe if you'd go home today and have a real conversation with the one you love or the ones you love, and you'd look them in the eye and you'd go, you know what, there's got to be more than this. Or you'd say, I can't keep living like this. Like, I've got to have more of him. So Jesus gathered his closest friends for supper. And he said to them, this bread is my body. It's given for you, given to you. Take it, need it, be thankful. after the supper was over, he took the cup, gave thanks for it, gave it to them and said, this cup is my blood, the covenant. It's given to you for the forgiveness of sins. It's a redemptive cup. To take it and drink it, each and every one of you do so, do so in remembrance of me. And so our invitation to this intersection is not for everyone. It's exclusive. It excludes people. It excludes, it only includes those who love Jesus, who, who believe that he bled and died and rose for your sins to create a way for you, a forever way for you, and that you're sorry for the sinfulness that sometimes sneaks in and that you're repentant desire to live for him and you desire to live at peace with the world around you your eyes have been opened it's not just about you that you care about your friends and family and the wounds of that naked beaten world that's around you if you qualify under that then you come as we say come and so father we come before you with a recognition that we've not loved you with our whole hearts but yet when we get honest about that, we realize it establishes for us this incredible celebration where we can come and intersect. We can see the lines meet where our today and your forever come colliding together, Lord, and we can eat this meal and know who we are and know how you feel. And so we ask Jesus that you would fill this moment with eternity, that you would pour all eternity into this moment as we eat this meal. Kevin, would you come and Carol? We're going to get set up. We're going to have two people, two groups in the front, and then Carol and I will be in the back. And just as soon as we're set up, you can come forward as you feel led. Just give us a moment.